0: That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M.com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. My guest on today's show is investment luminary Charlie Ellis. Charlie's the founder of Greenwich Associates, author of 16 books on investing, and one of the most sought-after industry advisors worldwide. He also believes deeply in the paradox of skill, and his latest book, The Index Revolution – Why Investors Should Join It Now, presents a compelling case for indexing for most investors. Charlie was an early guest on the show, and we reconvened to talk through the full case of indexing for individuals and some of its constraints for institutions. Our conversation covers the case for indexing, smart beta, the retirement problem, investing in alternatives private equity, and indexing challenges in emerging markets. After we turned off the recording, Charlie proffered that we offer a prize for anyone who can find valid fault with the case against active management for most investors. Any takers can drop me an email, and I'll be happy to put them toe-to-toe with Charlie to debate the issue. Please enjoy my second conversation with Charlie Ellis. Charlie, it is always wonderful to see you. Here's
1: looking at you, Doug.
0: (laughs) You've been talking recently about how the time has come for almost everybody to be indexing their assets.
1: Right. What's the story? Long, lots of parts, and undeniable. Undeniable, okay. Drop back 50 or 60 years. Early 1960s, I come into the investment management business. There were no courses at the Harvard Business School on investment management. One other guy went to Wall Street, family. Why in the hell did I go to the investment management business? It was an accident. I was interviewing one of the smartest men I'd ever met, very obviously a substantially competent person and found out during the first half hour of the interview that he was talking not about the Rockefeller Foundation, but the Rockefeller Family's Investment Office. (laughs) And by that time, I was absolutely sure if I could figure out what he was doing, I sure as the Dickens could learn a lot by working for him. The next half an hour, I learned a lot about investment management as they were seeing it in those days. And at the end of that time, he said, would you like to join us? And I said, yes. He said, when would you like to come to work? And I said, well... I'd like to take the summer off because my wife and I kind of thought we'd go west because my brother's getting married. And so if it didn't make any difference to you, after Labor Day. He said, oh, that's great. We don't do anything in the summer anyway. Why don't you, <laughs> why don't you come in on Tuesday after Labor Day? Fun. We shook hands and he left. And we had been interviewing in my apartment. So I went over to see my wife and she said, how'd it go? I said, it really went well. I Got offered a job, and I took it. That's terrific. What are you going to be doing? Investment management. Well, that sounds interesting. What are you going to get paid? Whoops, I forgot to ask. (laughs) In those days, you got paid the entry level at the Chase Manhattan Bank, which was the family bank, same as domestic servants. Everybody got paid $6,000 for the first two years. That was me. And just for perspective, what's that in today's dollars? less. (laughs) (laughs) Less. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a fabulous opportunity to be right at the very beginning, give you an illustration. The Rockefeller family, through Lawrence, had done some venture capital investing. One of them was for the brilliantly talented electrical engineer j- named Jack Scantlin, who had invented a desktop device that if you punched in on the keypad, the stock exchange symbol of any stock. It would print out on heat-sensitive tape what was the last price, high for the day, low for the day, trading volume. And it was unbelievable. Up until that time, you had to pick up the phone and call a broker and say, what was the last price of IBM or General Motors or whatever? And it was the beginning, the very beginning of a technology transformation. It's been simply fabulous. And what I've been able to do is to witness that transformation and... Candidly, there isn't any doubt in my mind that that transformation has already taken place so forcefully and for really good, understandable reasons. It's not going to reverse. And there is a sensible answer. There is a game or a process that can be played. Which Jerry Goodman called it the money game when he wrote that wonderful book. It's Adam Smith. The money game was seeing if you could outdo the investment capabilities of the other people. And that game used to be candy like stealing candy from children. 10% of trading at most was done by institutions. And who were the institutions? First, statewide branching was allowed, but interstate branching was not allowed for banks. So every mid-sized and larger city had two or three trust departments. They were most of it. The second group would be the major insurance companies in Hartford. And then there was a little bit of mutual fund activity up in Boston, a little bit in New York, and there might be some out in the West Coast, but nobody was paying much attention. 90% of trading was done by individuals. And who were they? They were nice people who bought or sold once every year or two, usually in odd lots because that's how much money they had. And about half the time it was AT&T. And they bought because they'd been given a raise or a bonus or an inheritance. And they sold because they were sending kids off to college or buying a home or some other sensible purpose. And it had nothing to do with what's going on inside the market. And they didn't know very much, but that didn't matter. They are buying a few blue chip stocks that they'd read about in magazines and stuff like that. Were they hard to beat? No way. They were easy to beat. And the secret to successful active investing is to have what's called It's a little bit nasty term, but called willing losers or serial losers or repetitive losers or habitual losers. But there are fairly large numbers of people who just don't happen to have accurate measurements to see how well they're doing, who in there are thinking, God, that looks like an interesting stock. I'm going to buy some. If that stock's going up, I think I'll buy some more. That kind of thinking, without really good research and without a lot of comparison shopping, makes them candidly easy targets to pick off and
0: beat. So one of the things we'll talk about later is this question people have about how much indexing can constitute the market. Yeah, save it market. for later. We'll save, save that for later. Me. Back then, how did price discovery work if 90% of the people were trading because of reasons exogenous to the market?
1: They bought on the basis of what they had read in the local newspaper or Business Week or whatever place. Or what had they heard? They might be pretty active. Maybe 10% of people were pretty active, sort of day traders. How do you do that? You call a broker, pay 40 cents a share commission, and buy some good stocks. And if you want to do a little bit better, from time to time, trade stocks and try to do a little bit better than that. Or you might be, it's early days for that sort of thing, but you might be investing in mutual funds. You find a mutual fund that had really good investment results, and you'd buy in and hope that that, Good investment result would keep going, and so we're we're at the trust departments that were doing stock research. Cleveland Trust, for example, would have half a dozen analysts who were willing to spend time covering utilities or industrials or financials, and nine thirty to four forty-five day job and they were reporting to a group of guys in their 60s who had come up through the chain of command and they were the investment committee and they met once or twice a month and they would approve additions or deletions from the approved list. And then the administrative officers working off that list would buy and sell. And you got on the list because you were blue chip. You were going to be a long-term hold because you want to avoid taxes on capital gains. Good dividend because you've got personal trust that have got capital beneficiaries and income beneficiaries. You want to pay the income beneficiaries while they're the receivers, and then have some money left over, maybe more, that would go to the next generation. And one thing you didn't want to do is pay off taxes. So you buy things that you could hold forever. And so what does the investor composition look like today? 100% reversal, plus, plus, plus. Instead of 90% of trading is done by individuals, it's now 9-9. That is 99% of trading is done by computers in the cash market and derivatives markets added together. Derivatives markets a little bit bigger than the cash market, but 99% of trading. And that, of course, in my mind, is the final bell ringer. So I want to explain some of the other things that go into it before you get to that, but 99%. Here's the final slammer. So there you are, professional investor. You have noticed that you're getting better and better and better over the years because your skills keep getting better. You've got better tools to work with, computers like you wouldn't have dreamed of five years ago. They're terrific. I've got more power in my cell phone in my pocket than an IBM 360 computer would have had. Holy crow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's just the beginning of the story. You have gained and gained and gained. You have research services like you never had before want to have it right now? You've got it. Through the internet, it's there all the time. Everybody gets it. So you're looking at yourself and you're saying, Ted, this is really terrific. I'm better than I used to be. I've got more sources of information than I ever had. I get it very, very quickly, and I can act any anytime I want to. There's only one irony. So can everybody else. So can everybody else. And if you happen to have all of us are, a mixture of skills and good luck. In the old days, good luck wasn't all that important. The skills really made a big, big difference. But as more and more people get the same kind of computing power, the same kind of information, the same speed of access, more and more people get more and more equal to each other. And the skills that they might have diminish in their percentage or relative importance because they've got these fabulous tools and this unbelievable supply. And it's that that makes them all increasingly equal. Even though they're getting better and better, they're getting less and less different. And as to get less and less different, it's hard to beat the other guy. So if I'm playing bridge and I get really better at bridge by quite a lot, take lessons for five years, and I go out there and I find out everybody else has been taking lessons too. Is it, Oh my gosh, I thought I would be way ahead and better. I can't be. And then the last is, it's like playing bridge with all the cards face up on the table. Because everybody knows everything that everybody else knows. You may manage it a little differently. You may make some mistakes a little differently. You may do some smart things a little differently. But it's very hard to do significantly better than the other guys when they've got everything that you've got. And that's just the beginning of the problem. But it is an amazing reality. And everybody's sort of focused on their own personal experience. They know they're getting better. They know they got better tools. They know they got better information. They know they are whiz bang compared to where they were five years ago or 10 years ago. Just easy to forget that everybody else is terrific too. Right. So let's talk a little bit
0: about some of the implementation of
1: that thesis that
0: indexing is a winning strategy
1: in portfolios. Well, there's a couple of other things you might want to have first. Number one, look at the information changes. Back in the 60s, which wasn't all that long ago, or 70s or 80s, if you want to have a private meeting with senior management, all you had to do is show that you'd done your homework, that you were asking intelligent Probing questions, and that you had been coming back on a regular basis to this company, were a serious investor. If you were, they'd be very glad to have you meet with two, three, four, five. How many? Eight? How many people would you like to meet with? Because they'd like to be understood so that the pricing would be fair and good. So, okay, that was terrific. You could get a comparative advantage. Secondly, you could be invited to a dinner where the senior executives would talk about what their plans are for the future of the company. You could get a comparative advantage. Third, you could use your computer capability if you had one or a slide rule if you didn't have a computer to do some analysis. You could work through the SEC library down at the New York Stock Exchange where nobody went, but if you went, you could get filings that allowed you to do some background digging. You could get a competitive advantage that was real. That's gone. First of all, the SEC now requires any publicly owned company that gives any useful information to any investor must simultaneously make a diligent effort to be sure everybody gets that same information. So no more private conversations with management. The second thing is the number of people involved in active investment management, best I can tell, has gone from less than 5,000 to more than 1 million over 50, 60 years. A major securities firm might have had 10 or a dozen analysts back in 1962 or three. What were they doing? They were looking for small cap stocks of interesting companies that might be interesting investments for the partners of the firm. Did they send anything out to their clients? No, not anything. In fact, Goldman Sachs didn't start sending things out until 64 or 5. And that was just one of the salesmen thought it might be an interesting idea to put four sides of sheet of paper little information on four different possible investments. He was doing it himself. Today, any self-respecting securities firm has worldwide, some in London, some in Hong Kong, some in Singapore, some in Tokyo, some in Los Angeles, 400, 500, even 600 people trying to come up with insights, information, data that might be useful to clients, anything that might be useful. So demographers, economists, political strategists, portfolio strategists, and every major industry teams working on that industry. Every major company will have 10, 12, 15 analysts who are really good covering that company. It's unbelievable what's now been available, 600 or 500 per major firm and, of course, then if you go to the specialist firms, there are all kinds of people. And then there are intermediaries who say, we're not a firm. We're just an intermediary. We've got access to all kinds of experts in any subject you might like to have. We've got 2,000 experts. And anytime you want to talk to any one of them, just let us know. We're glad to provide it. So unbelievable, flourishing amount of information of all kinds, all of which is organized and distributed just as quickly as possible, i.e., instantaneously, to everybody. And then you start going through and you say, Well, I hear about the CFA program. How's that working out? Well, it's off to a pretty good start. They've got 135,000 people have passed the exams, and another 250,000 people in the queue. Jeepers, great. where do those people come from? Well, still the biggest crowd is the US, the second biggest crowd is China, the third biggest crowd is India. Yeah. You mean it's global? Yeah, of course it's global. It's all over the place. People want in on the good thing. And, you know, you have to stand back and say, why would that be? Well, first of all, the investment world is probably the highest paid line of work that's wide open to everybody there's ever been. Certainly the highest paid line of work today for large numbers of people. And you don't get just the salary and the bonus. First of all, you don't have to retire at 65 or 70. You can keep going to 80, 85, 90, 95. There are guys that said, look, that 101, I'm going to stop working on Saturdays. So <laughs> a lot of people, so you stretch out longer. And the second thing is anybody in the investment business knows once in a while, maybe it's once every 10 years, some unbelievably attractive opportunity, not really right for clients because it's too small, too specialized, but some really attractive opportunity comes up and says, I would like you to invest in me. And it doesn't always work out, but sometimes it does. And when it does, it can be beautiful. So, you know, there are perks and benefits around the edges that are quite nice as well. The other thing is, you hang out with the nicest, most interesting people in the world. They are just a terrifically interesting, capable group of people playing the largest competitive game anybody ever found. So if you get your energy up by competing at golf or tennis, this is that's nothing compared to what can be done when you get up with the really interesting game, which is multidimensional and complicated and only the best can win, but they all get to win. And how many times do you hear somebody who used to be in the investment business and got tossed out? It's very, very small, very small. So there are a lot of really nice characteristics. everybody that goes to any business school studies investment management, at least a couple of courses. And then they (coughs) offer you how you go about doing things. And then lots of people offering jobs. And I know that recently there've been some Diminution, but not all that big a deal when you look at it. And it's a terrific employment. So what else is going on? Well, trading back in the early sixties might be three million shares a day on the New York Stock Exchange. And today it's I think it probably somewhere between four and five billion. That's more. Holy, a thousand <laughs> times? Yeah, well, actually more than a thousand times, but that's right. Unbelievable. So you've got volume change. And proportion change, and the nub of it all is, every time you want to buy or sell, you have to buy from guys who know everything that you know. You have to sell to people who know everything that you know. And if you think the market's going to average a return of 7 or 8%, which may be a little bit on the high side, you think, well, let's see, it's uh, 1% of operating costs, not every day, every trade, but over a year, maybe a half 1%, maybe 1%. And fees, half of 1% to 1% to 1.5%. Yeah, that's right. Add that up, that's somewhere around 2% has to be recovered just to keep up with the market. So 2% of 8% is 25%. You have to beat the competition by 25%. And they know everything you know as soon as you know it. And you can only buy from them and you can only sell to them. How what a chance do you have of having this all work out? And the answer is not very good. Then you say, well, that's the explanation, and I understand that. And everybody's got a Bloomberg terminal, and everybody's got internet, and everybody's got all that information. Is there any data that would suggest, because I read the newspapers, it looks pretty damn good. I Four out of our funds were in the top 10% or 20%. You well, know, yeah, how many funds do they actually have right seventy six. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I so it's a small fraction in the top, yeah. And is that equal to random? No, Charlie, it's not equal to random. It's a little bit less than what you get with random. So take Spiva is now putting out the data, take the funds that were in existence ten years ago and bring all of them forward, including the ones that were merged out or terminated, what fraction of them could not keep up with the index that they chose as their benchmark? The answer is 84%, can't keep up. Wait a minute, 84%? That's an enormous number or fraction. What does that mean? To me, it means very simple. If you would like to be sure, that you're a top quartile manager chooser, all you have to do is choose index funds. And the chances are you'll be the top half of the top quartile. you are sure to be in the top quartile, long run. You do have to hang on, but long run. That doesn't sound bad. Doesn't sound bad at all. Sounds like a pretty easy shot. It's two inch putt. Yeah, basically it's
0: a two inch putt. So Einstein quote, endeavor to keep things simple as possible, yeah. but no simpler. If we assume that indexing is the right strategy, let's take it to the next level and walk through, okay, how does
1: someone pick the index? Depends how f- clever you think you are and what your temperament or risk tolerance is. Easiest thing in the world is to buy a total market index. So you're now diversified across all economies, all markets worldwide, and Virtually every major company is there, and that's one way of doing it. Second state now, I'm an American, and I want to stay within the United States. Fine. You can do the total U.S. market, or you can do the S&P 500, or whatever generic broad base you want. And you say, actually, I've got a strong opinion. I've got enough time so that I can make a long-term policy decision. I believe that small-cap companies, long, long long-term, are a better place to be invested. Where I believe long term, emerging markets are more attractive than people think they are because prices are dominated by short to intermediate term thinking. Over the long term, I think they'll do better. And I've got the stamina, the nerve, the cool to be able to go through turbulence, ups and downs. But I know in the long run, that's going to work out. Or you can say, I do some of that, but not too much of that. So you might overweight the emerging markets by 10, 20, 30 percent of your portfolio or overweight small cap stocks by 10, 20, 30 percent of your portfolio. But the main thing is fees are huge. And if you're talking about taxable funds, then taxes are really important and costs are there and real and sidestepping those turns out to be the secret to long-term success given where we are today. And we've got an unbelievably skill-dominated market where everybody knows all this stuff all the time immediately. And
0: what's your take on the lower cost, these sort of, quote-unquote, smart beta strategies? So different ways than just cap weighting of getting at an index-like exposure.
1: Well first of all it's the best naming that's it's going phenomenal. on. It's the second best naming. The very best naming was when two Scots agreed that they were going to shift the name of death insurance over to life yeah. insurance <laughs> and it took off. And Smart Beta it's just it's brilliant. You may have noticed you can now buy a bottle of smart water. And that's selling well yep. too. If let's go back to the question on Smart Beta. If you are really knowledgeable and understanding The factors, and it's factor investing that you're really talking about, some low cost and momentum, these things do have real merit over the long, long, long term. But if you think about it for a minute, when will sales organizations ramp up their selling effort the most? And when will nice people who haven't thought about it as carefully as they might Be most tempted to say, let's go with it. Of course. It's after a very good period of rising prices. So, if value has been working very, very well, the demand for interest in buying into and the supply, i.e., interest in selling people on value factor investment, will rise to a crescendo at the top, and then people get disappointed. We're like, really, oh, great! that didn't work out. I'm really not doing all that well at all. Now that I look at my numbers, I ought to get out of that and get into something will work. But I'm, I'm sure there is a merit there somewhere. You know, I believe that the guys who have for years specialized in factor investing – are gonna find they can't make as good a profit from doing it as they used to because of the crowd, but they'll still probably do a pretty good job for themselves and for their investors. Those who are in it because it's a good commercial opportunity, intermediaries, or in it because they think, hey, this is a new way to beat the market, are going to create a self-disappointing experience. And it's a shame, but you know, we're all human beings it and is. we all the, do
0: that all the time. The performance chasing dynamic in factor investing is kind of an interesting debate. I think it's Cliff Asness, Rob Arnott that go back and forth on whether you should be able to time factors. And the data hasn't supported it in the same way it has with asset classes. And so if you, the notion is right, right? That when a factor performs, they'll get sold well, people will come in at the wrong time. It's just classic performance chasing. But history actually suggests that it's hard to time the factors.
1: Oh, boy, yes. You know that wonderful old down story that ends with a guy saying, and I know every rock in this habit. You know every rock in this habit, wham, there's a huge crash and a whole bunch, everybody on the boat gets jammed around, and he says, and there's one now. <laughs> <laughs> Let me give you the big positive pitch on indexing. Number one is that long-term, and that's key because short-term is what attracts our attention. Long-term, you will have at least top quartile investment returns. Very good chance you'll have top decile, given how the markets have tightened up. That'd be wonderful. Other things in addition to top decile? Yes, other things that really matter. What would that be? Well, lower taxes if you're talking about personal account. That'd be nice. What else? Actually, lower interest. Lower compelling interest. Lower chances that you're going to say, oh, my God. Or, hey, gee, that's terrific. A lower interest, not interest. No, it's emotional interest. interest, emotional Emotional interest, yeah. Or intellectual interest. Boring is really helpful to staying with something. Yeah, you don't get in your own way. And most of the mistakes that most of us have made and most of us will make are mistakes where we see Mr. Market out there, that marvelous gigolo, paying all kinds of tricks trying to get our attention so we'll do something. He doesn't give a darn what we do. He just wants us to do something, and he wants us to do it when we're not paying too much attention. So Mr. Market is out there scaring us sometimes and delighting us sometimes, and we make the same mistake we make otherwise. Because we're real people, because we're naturally emotional, because we have simplifying ways that we do things. If you haven't read Daniel Kahneman's wonderful book, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, slow down, think fast, read that book, because it's a catalog of the ways in which as human beings we're not perfectly rational. Right. And once you get used to the fact that son of a gun, none of us are perfectly rational, then you can behave the way you want to, which is reduce the chances of being stimulated, provoked, or scared into doing something that might not be in your best interest. And the less you do, the more you benefit is the reality about investing. Because usually what you do is you make mistakes. So if you make fewer mistakes, you're better off. It's a little bit like driving cars. You want to be a really good driver? Don't get into accidents, and your your friends and neighbors will all tell you, you're a really good driver. So a really great opportunity of indexing is it's boring And because it's boring, you don't get interested in doing something about it. And since there's nothing to do about it, you stay in kind of inadvertently for the long term. And wonderful things happen to you if you stay in for the long term. We've all seen charts, and I love them because they all say, gosh, that's interesting. Over the last 50 years, if you miss 2% of the best trading days, you miss the whole 50 years. And that's... That's a part of why it's boring is helpful because you don't get excited and get off to the sidelines. So you do have the positive years come for you. It's also true that the worst days come for you. But over time, you will do substantially better just by being there. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about
0: NetSuite by Oracle That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. We're talking about this at a moment in time where we've had an incredibly strong run in both equity and bond markets for a long time. Do you get concerned at all that even if indexing can beat the active management community, that investing in the indexes won't get retirement plans to their objectives, won't get the pension plans that are underfunded. That's a completely different
1: question. It is, but it's it's an important one. Crucial. If you look at what are the biggest problems we as a nation have in the investments world, it's easy to summarize pensions or retirement security. You can see it easily in the state and city funds that are seriously underfunded, even if they're assuming a seven, seven and a half percent rate of return, which they're not going to get, because they've got 25% 25 percent in two and a half, three percent bonds, and they're just not going to get it. The same thing, if you look at individuals, we've got half the population does not have a retirement plan. Private sector, They've got the Social Security, but no retirement plan. Those that do, 401k is increasingly dominant, taking over from defined benefit system. The average person approaching age 63 and a half, which is operationally retirement age in this country, is making a terrible mistake in two different ways. One is that they look at their account And they say, Ted, this is absolutely wonderful. I got more money in my name than I ever dreamed I would have. I've got 165,000 smackers in my account. Well, my wife and I are going to go out in Florida and meet up with those young people and play some golf and some tennis, have some fun. We're going to have great years. We've earned it. It's been a long, long working run, but we've earned it. It's going to work out just fine. And... Anybody with any knowledge about investing knows right away, $165,000, if you take money out, take money out, take money out from 63 or four, until 86, 8, 9, 90 in that zone, you're not going to have anywhere near enough per year cobbled together with social security to make anything like a decent connection. So what are you going to say? You're going to say to yourself, God damn it. I worked hard all my life. I played by the game rules as everybody laid them out. And I was supposed to be able to retire at a decent age and enjoy retirement. That's part of the deal. The answer is Jim, sorry, but nobody else understands that to be the part of the deal. And uh, you're on your own. Well, if I'm on my own, I can promise you this I'm angry, I'm focused. And I'm going to do something about it. And if you think we've had divisive politics in the past, imagine what it would be if you had millions of people and their relatives all saying it isn't fair, it isn't right. These guys got screwed. And I think we're going to have a terrible societal problem, political problem, if we don't recognize that we've got a deep misunderstanding on retirement. And, you know, you go back you mind if I take a few minutes just to tick off some of the key factors? How yeah, about it. Where'd 65 come from? Well, it came from Social Security, 1935. Yeah, but where did it come from before that? Well, it came from the Railroad Retirement Act in 1923. Well, where'd it come from before that? Well, it came from Churchill and Chamberlain jointly put forward in the United Kingdom that they would have retirement at 70. And then somebody said, you can't do it, Winston, because- 70 would put us at a disadvantage compared to the Germans. The Germans have got retirement at 65. Okay, we'll revise it. We'll put forward sixty-five of retirement. That was before 1920. So where did the Germans get 65? That's easy. In the early 1880s, Baron von Bismarck was trying to prove that combining all the different principalities in Germany together into a German nation led by Prussia, his home country, would be a great thing. So he's trying to prove that aggregating was a terrific thing. And he wanted to get technology on his side. So he had two different devices to prove it. One was the telegraph. The telegraph was allowed was combined with the postal service. So you could send letters to be picked up anywhere in any major city. It'd be picked up in the morning and be delivered that afternoon. Pretty damn good service. And the telegraph, you could have instantaneous communication anywhere in Germany. Unbelievable benefit to commercial interest, family interest, all kinds of different reasons. What else did he have? Well, the obvious technology was railroads. We're going to bring coal and iron ore from the Ruhr and other areas to where the steel mills are. And we're going to build steel mills and have tremendous industry. And then we're going to do railroads. We're going to be able to bring people from the cities out to the countryside for weekends Vacations are going to be normal, and we'll bring from the countryside fresh fruit, fresh vegetables, all kinds of wonderful things that people in the cities could eat. It's going to make everything terrific. That's great, but where are you going to get the workers to work on the railroad? I'm going to offer them lifetime employment. That's interesting. You get them to come off the farms because they can work lifetime employment. That's terrific. What do you call that? Well, that's a guarantee. This is a commitment. It's the honor of Germany okay, let's go. Well, what goes on? Well, after going for a couple of years, there are accidents on the railroads. Good Lord, what happened to that accident? Well, it was uh, two trains ran into each other and a couple of people were killed and there was big newspaper hullabaloo. and the Reichstag is really upset about it. They're thinking about passing legislation and your political momentum is being broken up pretty badly. And Baron, you really got to do something about this. Well, let's send a study group and find out what the heck is going on. Geez, there's another accident. Find out what's going on with these accidents. Well, you know, we found out what the answer is. The work parties, laying tiles, lifting heavy ties, rails, shoveling coal—all kinds of heavy work—they're saying to the older guys. You know, the guys are in their late fifties, sixties. You're too old for this kind of work. You take the easy job. You'll be in charge of the switches. So the switches are being manned by guys in their early 60s. and It's a beautiful summer's day, and there are no trains coming for the next couple of hours. So they kind of, why not take a little nap? And they're just taking a nap when they forgot to wake up, and the accident happened. So, (laughs) jeez, we've got to stop this. Well, how can we stop this? You guarantee them to pay them for life, so why don't you pay them not to work? Not to work. That's interesting. We'll do that. But I don't want to spend a lot of money on it. So find the Minimax where it costs not too much to solve most of the problem. And the answer was 65. Most people don't live to 65 in those days in Germany. But those who do are really doddering. So 65, will pay them not to work. They only last for another couple of years after that anyway. So that's where Germany went, and that's why England went with 65, and that's why railroads went from 65, because they studied the German railroads before passing the Act in the States. And then that's where Social Security came from. And what's happened since 1883? Turns people out we live, live a longer. We <laughs> live a lot longer. And where does that go? Does that mean they're working longer? No, no. All that time goes into retirement. So retirement years have been expanding, expanding, expanding. And the balance between work years and retirement years has changed profoundly. And of course, the last part is in retirement. Don't forget, it's 65, 66, 67, little argument about the exact number. But something over 65% of your lifetime health expenses are spent in your last six months. So what happens then? Well, people, that's where half the personal bankruptcies come from. Yeah. And there's all kinds of trauma that goes with that. Cheapers, Assisted living is expensive, and dementia is a serious problem, and all those kinds of difficulties. So we're going to have a real problem with old-age retirement security, and we could deal with it in a couple of ways. If you don't mind, take just one more minute on that. Yeah, go for it. Instead of people claiming Social Security when they could, which is 62, Most people don't know that there's a big difference between claiming Social Security at 62 and 70 and a half when you have to. Do you know? No, I have no Most people don't know. They say, Charlie, I'll bet it's a lot bigger. If you wait that long, I'll bet it's at least 25% more. Well, yeah, it's certainly at least 25. It's actually 76% higher. Every day for the rest of your life, inflation-protected, benefits, social security, if you wait. Why? Because the trade-off. If you wait, you have fewer years of retirement, so they're willing to give you a larger amount. But what could you do with those, call it eight years, nine years? You could, during the same time period, if you've got a 401k, your 60s are the easiest years to save money. So you could ramp up your savings, dump it into the 401k as fast as you could. The second thing is... You'd be invested in the 401k, and that's pretty good. And the third thing is you're not taking money out of your 401k. Take those three factors, not taking money out, keep put adding more money in, rate of return. You easily double your 401k, maybe triple it. Depending on which nine years. Yeah. Yeah. So does that change things? Well, let's see. Your Social Security goes up by 76%. I love that because it's the spirit of 76 in this country. And... Your 401k goes up by at least double, maybe more, and put those together, and your chances of being in serious financial trouble in retirement go from awful to not too bad. So if we act soon, we could make a big, big difference in what could otherwise be one of the worst problems our society has ever faced.
0: And what are the challenges of getting that message out so that people understand it and act on it?
1: Nobody's paying attention to it. it's too late. It's the big problem. The second is Congress is not doing it because why? Well, they've got all the other things that they're dealing with, and those are politically urgent issues that they've got to be prepared to run on. And nobody's thinking about, hey, you know, it'd be really good for America if we all agreed to move retirement age from 63 or 4 up to 70. Then companies should have to adjust and individuals would have to adjust, but that would make a huge positive difference. And if we encourage people not to take their social security until they're 70 and a half, and if we encourage people to keep working, it's the best thing people could do. And I left, you know, I'm now just past 80 years of age, and I'm having a wonderful time working. I'm lucky. I'm in a line of work that I enjoy and love. I'm not a a coal miner, and I'm not a ditch digger, and it's not tedious and boring. It's interesting. But it does keep you alive and well to keep going.
0: Yeah. So I want, I want to bring these two together. So we have this retirement issue and particularly true and underfunded pensions as well for the old defined benefit plans. And we have this strong belief you have in indexing. And I mostly agree with you about indexing. I think the story is right. I get in the weeds. I've been exposed to certain people that I like, Pretty much everybody else feels like maybe they're an exception, but that's okay. That's my own fault.
1: Wait a minute. You're going to give me a break. Where could you disagree with what I've said? I haven't said anything well, about I opinions. So, well, it's I'm not going to data. disagree.
0: The issue I have is that it doesn't strike me today, going forward for the next 10 or 20 years, that indexing will get people what they need. Well, capital active, market.
1: active certainly
0: won't. So let's talk a little bit about What some of the sophisticated institutions have done. So, our beloved alma mater, Yale University, has next to no money in public equities or bonds. Now, I get that not everybody can do that. But for those who can, what's your take on? Okay, yes, indexing is important in those markets where you can index, but the more interesting opportunities over the next stretch might be in private equity or venture capital or direct real estate or real assets, not financial assets.
1: Tut, tut, Ted. You shouldn't be talking that way. Uh, I've used myself as an example. I have probably as good a network of friends in the investments world as anybody. Particularly in the active management world. Yeah, it's huge. And I know because of service on a whole bunch of different philanthropic investment committees. I happen to know an awful lot of guys who are really talented at picking talented people. And I meet with them on a regular basis. So you think, hey, Charlie, you probably are as good a position as anybody to be able to pick and choose terrific active managers. What do you do with your own investing? Oh, I've got two kinds of investment. One is index funds, which I'm so happy with uh, just really comfortable with. And the second is an index fund equivalent in many ways, Berkshire Hathaway. Now, why do you own Berkshire Hathaway? Because I bought into it in the early mid-70s. I know Warren as a person. I don't want ever to meet him in a hallway and he says, hey, Charlie, I hear you sold out. <laughs> uh, just, I'm grateful to what he's done for me and other investors, and I'm very, very comfortable. I know they haven't done as well as Index in the last couple of years, but that doesn't bother me. I'm very comfortable staying with that investment. Why don't I go do some of the clever things that can be done? Easy answer, I'm not good enough. I don't know enough. There are some ways that you could do it. Let's, let's be candid. You and I both have tremendous admiration for David Swenson at Yale. Should David be indexing at Yale? No. Why? He's got all kinds of competitive advantages. Everybody loves David Swenson. Everybody loves the idea of working for Yale. He's got the best team on his side, picking, working with managers anybody ever had. If you have a relationship with Yale, you know it's going to be a long-term relationship. Average tenure of their manager relationship, something like 14 years. That's the average, even though they usually invest with people at the day one or before day one that they get into business. If you look at a list of their investment managers, you'd say, geez, I don't recognize most of those names. That's right. Nobody else does either. It's a very unusual kind of investing. Guts ball, intellectually proficient, and they do slightly better on asset mix, half of 1% maybe, and slightly better on manager selection, half a 1% maybe. And they got a team of 30 guys who are working to be sure they keep it up. And they got a network of friends and f- admirers all over the world leading, feeding any kind of tip that they possibly can. So who gets first call? They do. Who gets the best call? They do. All kinds of advantage. So there are organizations like that. And there are not very many of them, but there are. Okay. Who else? Well, find a Small investment management organization that has really good analysts who are specialists in their industries, and the industries fit together fairly well. So you got half a dozen or more stellar analysts. They've got their own money in. A couple of principals got their money in, and they're taking in a few outside investors as well. A couple billion dollars to help cover costs. That would be a very attractive opportunity. What else? If you find a group of, let's say, 100 mathematicians who are unbelievably proficient at working with data, and they are doing things that none of the rest of us understand. And if you saw their performance compared to the performance of others, it makes no sense to me at all. They're up when other guys are down. They're down when other guys are up. It's all over the place. And they go, huge ups, and then not so much. I don't think I could have the stomach to live through that, fine. But that's what they're doing, something nobody else is doing. They have no real competition, and uh, they're doing fine, on average, over the long term. Okay, so that's the reality, okay? So what are you talking about? I'm talking about if you are really an exception in the way you invest, You don't have to index. You can do something that's really different, but you have to be really good at your exceptional way of doing things. And you have to be not very widely followed or copied because you're gonna be almost alone at doing it. Good for you, go for it.
0: How do you think about private equity? And let me give you two lenses. One is in this world where more and more money is moving to indexing in the public markets, Private equity still has extremely high fees and excess demand. On the other hand, structurally, and David had said, it's sort of the purest form of capitalism because all of these behavioral issues disappear if you give your money somebody for 10 years and let them go buy businesses and fix them up. Where do you come out on thinking about private equity for the institutions that you work with that have the appropriate resources to be trying to find those exceptional managers?
1: Those who are skilled at being good customers and understand that the real competition today is not by the investment managers to get your investment money. It's by the people who've got money to get access to the best investment managers. And that's been true for the last decade in venture capital. It's now clearly true in private equity. And that's a really important differentiation. Most of the guys grew up thinking they're competing for the girls, and it turns out that the girls were paying attention to who were the guys, and actually the big competition might be the other way around. So it's worth keeping in mind that there's a big change. The other thing that's really important is I don't think there's any very large pool of capital that has not addressed the following question. Ted? we have a commitment to a higher rate of return than we're now getting. What can we do to increase our rate of return? Answer, private equity. Great. So why don't we put not 10%, but 20 or 30%. Don't go to 40%. That's a little high, but let's say 33% into private equity. And we'll do it in a very imaginative way. We'll have a a couple of specialists who will work on selecting the private equity funds employed by us. Candidly, we can't pay very high salaries because our fund structure doesn't allow us to do that, but we'll do the best we can. And we're going to be a major commitment to private equity. Fine, so you do, and I do, and they do, and they do, and the others do, and so does everybody else make a major commitment to private equity jump over to talking to private equity firms today, what would they say? We've got more money than we really would like to have. In fact, we've got a cash balance that we can't use yet. We're competing with other guys with a lot of money too, so the entry price for private equity has been going up and up and up. The exit price can't keep going up a lot if the stock markets on the relatively high side ought to recognize that that's probably as good as we can anticipate. Cheapers, It's getting harder and harder to get those returns. And we go in two different directions. Some people say, so we're not going to raise more money. We're going to stay as small as we can. We're going to specialize in our particular niche, and we're not going to take new accounts. So that takes them out of the equation. And there's another group say, well, you know, if everybody wants us, we'll have to be opening up more capacity, and we'll just take the money. We'll see if we can't find a way to invest it as we go along. But it might be difficult, but we're going to try. And, you know, it's always worked so far. Well, you could have a huge flood of cash going into private equity and you can ruin anything by raising the entry price. Which is happening today for sure. sure. So there's no easy roads. It's investment.
0: Yeah. How do you think about with the lens of indexing and the challenges and some of the other assets, longer term themes that might inform where you put your capital? So let's just say China as an example where it's not hard to have a thesis that investment in China and the growth of the economies is going to be a lot stronger than it will be in the U.S. or other developed markets over the next 20 years. And for sure, some institutions have deployed a bunch of money in different ways in China. How do you think about that in, in the context of an asset allocation strategy?
1: Well, I've just spent a week in Beijing, so I'm sort of timely to talk about it. <laughs> loaded up. First thing you notice right away is the air is not too bad. It's changed. Heavy industry has been pushed out of Beijing. second thing is you hear they're actually planning to do even more than that. There's a sister city going to be built about 150 kilometers from Beijing, and a fair fraction of the people in Beijing are going to be moved there, and it's going to be a dream come true, ideal, high-tech city. And it could be really interesting. Third thing is the middle class or upper middle class in China is larger than the US population. It's worth keeping in mind, 350 million people here, 350 million people there. The number of really, really bright people is about proportionate, maybe a little bit on the higher side in the mix in China. And there's a lot of dynamic, a lot of excitement. And they happen to have a fairly stable government. and That, for many people, is a positive factor. The old communist ideas have been pretty carefully put aside by Deng and others who have said, why don't we release the energies of a dynamic group of people? And that's exactly what's going on. If you look around and say, you know, a lot of these buildings, I don't remember them when I was here last. That's right. You don't because they weren't here last. But more are coming. There are going to be more of them. And there's a certain amount of excitement about, hey, you know, if you work hard, you can do really well, and all kinds of the energies that we think of. And they say, well, it's not just China. Vietnam is a pretty exciting place. They've got 120 million people, and they've got a high commitment to education, and they've got strong work ethic, and they don't borrow money, and they live with their parents until they're in their early 30s, and then they move to a new place, and then they bring their parents in. And there's a lot of dynamics. You say, God, we must have won that war because it really is all American in so many wonderfully exciting ways. And it's interesting. used to be that you see every once in a while a bicycle and then every once in a while a motor scooter and then once in a while an automobile. Now every once in a while you've got motor scooters all over the place and then quite a few automobiles and everybody's talking about building in the new Hanoi, the wider highways, and so on and so on. So the dynamics in the countries that are really dynamic are exciting. And if you think, gosh, you know, longer wavelength, is this likely to be a big power? The answer is absolutely
0: yes. The challenges in some of the emerging markets with indexes are they get highly concentrated in just a few names. In fact, you lose what you're trying to get access to, which is, say, exposure to China, Where today, if you wanted a Chinese index, you probably only own banks and tech companies. So how should somebody think about a less diversified stock market index
1: exposure? Carefully. Let me put myself in the horns of a dilemma. The Chinese market, as anybody who spends any time with it knows, is still dominated by retail investors, prices particularly. So unless you're good at understanding retail investors and how they track past price performance and project future price performance. Indexing may not be all that useful and might actually be a mistake because you might find yourself being indexed with foolishness rather than indexed with rigorous professional expertise. So I don't want to put too much of a pressure on indexing emerging markets as a whole, and particularly China, because there's that That's, unusual- at sounds a little dynamic. more
0: different dynamic, but then the 70s in the US. But if you have a bunch of retail, you know, and there's certainly a, a gambling ethos in China, and maybe they're, they're saying there is a, that kind of a better opportunity for active management than there is in the US.
1: I would say so. If you really understood what you were doing, had the really right context and so on, I think it'd be very interesting.
0: And what do you think about Europe in that context? Is that closer to the US in much, terms of the sophistication? Much closer. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the common debates about indexing, particularly in the U.S. today. There's this question of Vanguard's growing like crazy, BlackRock ETFs in addition to um, the traditional index funds. How big do you think indexing can get before you lose this semblance of price discovery?
1: Well, let me look at it the way I look at it to see if you find this makes sense. First, if you have 30% of the value of the market indexed, that's not 30% of the trading activity. It's a much smaller fraction. Sure. So what you have to do is have enough assets indexed to reduce the trading activity enough so that enough of that million-plus people who are making their living as active investors comes down and down and down and down and down to a level where you're caught. Where do you think then the markets start to become less Carefully priced, and information starts to get a little choppy. And Mike Bloomberg's terminals are going to stay out there, but maybe they stop adding to them. And SEC is not going to change its rules, so that's sort of a fixed phenomenon. You might have hedge funds reduce their volume of activity, so maybe some of that. But computers are rising, and AI is guaranteed to come as a more and more and more powerful phenomena. So maybe all those things kind of cancel out and it doesn't make an awful lot of difference. But find a way that enough participants in the pricing determination decide, Ted, I've looked at it very carefully and I've decided I'm quitting the business. I'm going into medicine, law, farming, ranching. I mean, what is it that people are going to go into that they think they're going to find a more satisfying than, well, you know, honestly, it's not as good as it was, but it's still the best game in town. So it's going to be very hard to get people to give up on going into active investing. If they do and you cut back a lot, how much do you have to cut back? And the answer is you have to cut back and cut back and cut back a lot so that you don't have a residual group of people who are really pretty darn good at price determination. And I don't know what it would be, but it's certainly more than half the people would have to quit.
0: Yeah, we're a long and way Probably
1: that. more than three-quarters would have to quit. And my own guess would be somewhere around 80 85% would have to quit just because it doesn't make sense anymore. And the combination of the interests
0: of the people who are active managers and not quitting and the behavior of individuals who want to do better than average would make it sound like, boy, that's not going to happen for a long time.
1: That's my own view. But if it does happen, give me a call because I'll come out of whatever and say, let's go. Try it again.
0: (laughs) What advice would you give someone who's early in their career and has discovered this great passion for investing? And they've also discovered this truth that you might never be able to win.
1: Well, I think the obvious answer is think about it very carefully. If you're doing it because you love it, personally, I think there's some real merit to that as a way of making a decision of what you want to be doing. When young people say, I want to go with my passion, it bothers me because passion to me is an irrational, powerful emotion. And I'm not sure if passion is the right thing to guide somebody. But if you said, no, I really enjoy the nature of the work and I'm really, really attracted to it, then I think you'd probably be able to find ways of making a decent living and uh, would enjoy it. But if you're, and you have to be candid with yourself. Are you going to it because you think it pays so very well? Be prepared. It's not going to pay so well. If you think you're going to it because it's fun, everybody's having a great, good time, candidly be careful because the party may be closing down and maybe the punch bowl is going to be disappearing and maybe all the most fun people will have decided they might go home a little on the early side. I'm just. It's been an absolutely glorious place to be. I am so grateful that the world was organized in such a way that that's where I happen to be. And I recognize it was all good luck. And I had just a truly wonderful, wonderful time. And it's not protective or jealousy of other people having a wonderful time too. I just, be careful. So if you were young
0: and starting your career today, and you can't whisper plastics in someone's ear anymore. So what's the whisper if, you know now that if you're at the early part of a certain industry and can kind of capture a long wave of growth, you can have a very rich career. Where would you head today?
1: Uh, I won't give you the right answer, i give you a different answer, maybe. Personally, I know what I would do is I would look for mid-sized groups, 100 to 500 people, where I could provide a quality of leadership that they would find really, really exciting, positive, affirming and what I'd call servant leadership, where you're helping the organization get better and better and better at what it's doing. And that's the kind of work I've done with investment committees. And that's the kind of work I've done in my philanthropic work. And candidly, that's the kind of work I did at Grandshire Associates. And that's me. And I love doing that kind of work. And it's fairly portable and is profoundly enjoyable. But it's a little bit like parenting. You have to be in it for the long term because moment to moment, it can be kind of frustrating. But if you're in it for the long term, deeply satisfying.
0: All right, Charlie, I want to turn to some closing questions that we didn't get to the first time we sat down for the podcast.
1: What's your biggest investment pet peeve? About investment management as a profession and business. For investing, is that it's too much of a business, not enough of a profession. And that means people are not going to tell the real straightforward story that active investment management no longer earns the fees and costs it incurs. And that we should be telling everybody. It would be a good idea if you would go ahead and index because you'll be better off doing that. That's probably pet peeve, most profound concern is obviously retirement security. It is a dreadful, dreadful problem, particularly for democracy. And if we don't deal with it fairly soon, it's going to be very hard to deal with it. And if we get behind the curve on that one, we're really going to suffer. Yeah. I know you're also very fond of the term passive investing. No, I don't like passive (laughs) as a term. Passive investing, you you think about it, where did passive investing as a term come from? Easy. The guys who put together the concept were all electrical engineers. So a plug with three prongs or two prongs is the active part, and the passive part is the plug that's got two or three holes. And so active and passive, neither one has a pejorative connotation. But can you imagine anybody saying, I'd like you to meet Ted? He's passive. How you would feel about it? Or if you heard people rumoring, you know, Ted, I think he's kind of passive. You wouldn't like that then you wouldn't want to vote for somebody who was identified as passive. Passive is a negative word. We're all taught to be active. Take charge. Do something. And um, it's a shame that nominal terminology has put an enormous negative right on top of a very sensible way of doing it. What's the riskiest thing you've ever done? Oh, I think that's got to be skydiving. Not that I was at risk, but I was at risk to be skydiving with two sons who were early mid-teens. And they went first (laughs) because there wasn't enough space on the plane. And I will have to tell you, watching that plane and watching my two beloved sons, I knew they were safe because when you skydive first time, you were wired with a cable to the guy who's an expert. You can't have any trouble. But it still gave me the heebie-jeebies. And when I went up, I also had heebie-jeebies, but nowhere near as intensive. And then when I landed and realized, yeah, I just landed on my feet. Hey, this is kind of fun. Let's go again. And my <laughs> two sons are running. Dad, can we go again? Can we go again? I realized, yeah, okay. It was just an emotional reaction.
0: What teaching from your parents has most stayed with
1: you? I think probably an affection for America in the long run would be the biggest one. They had grown up in college and then went right into the depression and then the Second World War and then the Cold War and they really believed in America and so do I and I'm awfully glad I do you know I've had an enormous privilege of travel all over the place and there is no place that I would rather live or have my family live or my great-grandchildren live than in America I think we're going through a miserable moment right now, but it won't last forever, and we've gone through terrible times. I mean, Joseph McCarthy did exist, and he was right here in America, and Father Coughlin did exist, and he was right here in America, and we've had some truly dreadful here and there in another place. But the long run, the goodness of the American people and the goodness of the values we ascribe to keep coming back, and we're lucky to have an economic system that works really, really well. We're large scale. We have a large number of harbors, which turns out to be great, because seaboard traffic. Large number of rivers turns out to be great. Large number of really good agricultural soil turns out to be great. Uh, We've been very lucky people, and all we have to do is stay lucky. What's the biggest mistake you've made? I knew a very bright guy in college, and I knew he was exceptionally bright, and not a particularly agreeable person, but he was deeply involved in some venture investment. And I thought being able to invest with him might be a terrific opportunity and in small proportions. And he said, you know, I'd really like to work with you. You've got a good managerial background. You could go on the board of a couple of these companies and really help us a lot. And so I'm bought into it. And fortunately, it didn't put up a lot of money, but enough so that I, <laughs> that was a mistake. So I guess that would be one. The second is back in the early mid-70s, I had a wonderful conversation over lunch with a terrific investor named Sandy Gottesman. And Sandy ran a firm called First Manhattan. And he assistant had said, Mr. Gossman would like to see you and he'd like to have lunch with you. And I was kind of surprised because the year before, they'd been clients of Greenwich Associates and I'd been able to show, I thought pretty clearly, that they really shouldn't be in the securities business because they didn't want to put up capital for block trading and they didn't organize their research by industry. They organized it around really creative ideas and institutions weren't really ready to pick up that They liked what they were doing, but they couldn't understand how to work with it themselves. And they were really good at investment management, but they were missing the market that we were covering. We were covering large corporate pension funds, 1,000 largest, and they were going for the second or third 1,000 largest. And I had told Sandy, I don't think we've got anything to offer you. I think you ought to not use our services. He called and said, I'd like to see you, or his assistant did, so I went in. And Sandy happens to be a beautiful lesson in Gentleman class act. He said to me, Charlie, it's very nice to see you. And uh, as you told us last year, we agree with you. We shouldn't be using your services. But I wanted to tell you personally, So, because I always think that's the right way to tell somebody you're not going to use their service. Now that I've said what I had to say, it's kind of silly, but you're here for lunch, and I'd like to have lunch too. And I know you're a good guy, so why don't we go up and have lunch? And uh, we we'll talk about anything you want to talk about. So in the elevator going up, I thought to myself, what in the world do I ask Sandy Gottesman about? And finally, I said, we sat down to lunch. He said, well, what do you want to talk about? I said, Sandy, you're probably as a good investor as I will ever know. Do me a favor. I'm a young guy. Teach me some lessons about investing. What would you recommend for somebody my age for investing? He said, well, that's easy, Berkshire. I said, you mean Warren Buffett's outfit? He said, Yeah. Berkshire Hathaway. Well, tell me all about it. For the next 40 minutes, Sandy Gottesman, who was chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, told me one after another the different factors that caused him to believe that Warren really was a superb investor. So I went back to my partners at Crenshaw Associates, and we had a reserve fund. that I said, you know, the market's way down. It can't go down a lot more than this, and that happened to be true in the early 70s. This is a safe and sane investment. I think we would be smart to invest this money in the safe and sane Berkshire Hathaway. So as a defensive move, we bought some Berkshire Hathaway. And candidly, it's worked out beautifully. But what I wish has gone up 300 times from where we bought it. What I wish, obviously, is we bought more. That's probably the biggest mistake I've ever made. <laughs>
0: Opportunity cost, yeah. What information do you read that you
1: get a lot out of that other people might not know about? Well, I'm an art history major, so I enjoy reading about artists. And you learn a lot by reading about artists. First of all, like investing, it's not easy. And very few artists are really successful financially. And fame comes and goes. If you look who were the great Absolute sure, greatest artists in the 1920s. Most of them nobody has ever heard of. You go back earlier you say, yeah, that's right. The Impressionists did not sell well, did they? No, they did not sell well. But they've been very popular since then. Yeah, but different. So fashion is a very important. So that helps you with the investing. And then connectivity and people. And it turns out that artists who were successful usually knew artists who were successful and they learned a lot from each other in their art, but they also helped each other get sales. And in Canada, the Group of Seven organized themselves to see if they couldn't get more promotions. And so they collectively promoted the Group of Seven as the Canadian artists who were capturing the essence of Canada. And now today, their art is all over the place and wonderfully admired because they taught each other some skills and techniques that made them more or less comparable, but the concept of an all-Canadian art really took off. So you learn something that way. So
0: that's me. All right, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life?
1: Oh, that's easy. It is all about people, whatever it is. It's all about people. And people of great character never lose it. And people who do not have great character never get it. And if you could just take that one, one lesson and stay with it, it'll help you enormously in your family life, in your social life, in your business life, in your professional life, and in your personal, just inside yourself, life. And uh, anything you could do to drift closer and closer to good character will pay off many times over. Charlie, you have and always
0: will be one of those great characters thank you for this time and uh, thank you for being you
1: it's a pleasure hey
0: before you take off I've started sending out a monthly email that shares a small selection of what caught my eye over the month I get a lot of emails like this and I'm sure you do too so I'm only going to send no more than a handful of the very best things that caught my eye if you'd like to receive that email hop on my website at capitalallocatorspodcast.com and join the mailing list